so Yahweh brought Israel to Mount Sinai in order to make a covenant with them as his chosen people. This is seen in Exodus 19. He came down to Mount Sinai in a storm of fire, making it his cosmic mountain. The same Shekinah glory of God that led them out of Egypt and into the promised land is the very thing that comes down on this mountain in a storm. So we talked about the idea of the cosmic mountain, the gods rule from these mountains. And Yahweh chooses Mount Sinai to be his cosmic mountain as well. However, the difference is this isn't his permanent cosmic mountain. Because he is the God who created everything, technically any mountain is his cosmic mountain. He can make any mountain his home because he's not regulated to just a certain geography. So he comes down on this and he invited the people up, which no other God had ever done. And God verbally spoke to the entire nation. Chapter 19 and 20 tells us that everyone heard God is speaking to them. And so, yet the people, the noise, the, 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 the decibels of God's voice was so scary, they didn't want to hear anymore. Now, it wasn't just the decibels, because Moses was able to handle it and be okay. Most likely, it was also the righteousness of his word. His, his, now, you and I don't know what it's like to really listen to somebody who's truly righteous speaking to us, and how that really just overwhelms us with conviction. Because there are none who are righteous. But we probably know what it's like to stay in the presence of somebody who's like convicting us with something. And we know like, oh, I feel so convicted and I know that I'm wrong and I need to change things. So imagine the divine God of the entire universe speaking to you as your entire being is hearing righteousness all the time. And so they didn't want to hear it. So they rejected coming into his presence out of fear. Now, this is even what Moses said. He says, fear not, for Yahweh is not against you, but fear the Lord. Meaning, don't be afraid of him that he's going to destroy you and wipe you up, but have a fear and respect for who he is. Worship him. When God comes on Mount Sinai, despite this rejection, which they have been doing for the last 50 days, he promised to make a covenant with them. And he promised that if they obeyed him, he would adopt them as his chosen people make them a kingdom of priests, and make them a holy nation. So this is seen in Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I lifted you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. And now if you will diligently listen to me and keep my covenant, then you will be my special possession out of all the nations. For all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation." These are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. What he means by this is, first he says, you have seen how I lifted you up on eagles' wings. Mother birds would often put their young ones on their wings and fly and carry them on their wings until they are able to fly themselves. So he says, you didn't save yourself. You did not deserve to be saved. I lifted you up on my wings and I brought you to this out of Egypt. What he's making it very clear is their salvation has nothing to do with their works or nothing to do with their worthiness. He has done everything. But the covenant is dependent upon obedience. If you obey, then I will make you a special chosen people. Now he says, though the whole world belongs to me, you will be my chosen people. Now this is significant because kings owned everything. They even own your own lives. 
And if a king wants your land, he can take it. If a king wants your wife, he can take her. And nobody can stop him because he's above the law, and there is nobody to punish him when he controls the army. And when you own everything and everything belongs to you, nothing really has special value. You've seen this with children who have everything that they would ever want, and they just ask for it, and they get it, and then nothing special to them anymore. And so kings would often have these special collections, like a rare coin collection, a rare swords collection, or a rare whatever, something that was so rare that only he could either have the means to get it financially or resource-wise, that nobody else could. And so this is what it was special to him. This belongs to me and me alone, and only I am capable of getting something like this. So that when guests came, he would show off his collection, and he'd be proud of it because it's one of the very few things that are unique that he actually gets to enjoy that makes him special. And so what God is saying is, all the nations belong to me. Everything in the universe is mine. But I'm going to make you my special people. You're going to be unique, and you're going to be connected to me in a way that nobody else is. Now, God makes it clear this is not for favoritism. This is not favoritism. This is not for special treatment. Because he goes on, he says, and I will make you a kingdom of priests. Now, the job of a priest is to mediate between God and the people to teach the people about God and then atone for the sins of the people so they can come into the presence of God. So he he brings God to you through knowledge and he brings you to God through atonement. And they were to be a kingdom of priests, which means they are to go to the world. Every single one, according to the Exodus, God said every firstborn of every family will be a priest. Not the tribe of Levi. Every firstborn of every family of every tribe will be priests, meaning that every family will have access to God through their older brother or father being a priest. And every family will then have the right to be priests to the entire world. So he's making them this chosen people in order to bring the world to him, to make them a part. Remember, he disinherited the nations and chose Israel, but he did this to bring the nations into Israel, a new people. And so that's what they were to be. Then he was going to make them a holy nation. Now, holy does not mean separate from. Holy does not mean morally righteous. Throughout the Bible, it's not like when God says that the, the, the knife in the tabernacle is holy, he's not saying it's, it's righteously moral and all the other knives are bad knives. And he's not saying that, as we often thought that holiness means righteousness. It doesn't mean just separateness either. Because if you have a whole bunch of things together, it's no longer separate. Holy means unique and unlike anything else in creation. It's unique and unlike anything else in creation. You can't find anything else in creation that's like this. You can't compare anything in creation to this. Therefore, God is the only one who's holy because he's the only thing that's unique and unlike anything in creation. There is nothing like God in the entire universe. Everything in creation is like something else. If you, you, as a teacher, you know that everything is filled with comparisons. There are similarities with everything. Now, there's also differences, but there's always likes and as with everything. And there's nothing unique other than God. Now, when he says for us to be holy like he is holy, that doesn't mean that we can become holy in ourselves. By nature, we cannot be holy. We cannot become unique and unlike anything else in creation. But we can become unique and unlike anything else by the way that we're used by God. All humans, they use their skills, intelligence, and beauty or whatever they have 
in order to accomplish their own means, to feel accepted, to feel safe, to be um, promoted, to have power, to have wealth, to feel good. We pursue for our own desires. We're selfish. But when God comes in and uses you and you surrender to him, you're going to be used in a unique way. You will be finally transformed by his spirit. And he will use you to bless other people, not for your own sake, but for other people. You will be used not to build your own kingdom, but God's kingdom. And this is how we become holy, by the fact that we become the tool in God's hands. And when God is holy, he uses us in a unique way that is unlike any other human is being used in the world. And so this is what he's saying to Israel. I am going to choose you out of all the nations. You have a special relationship with me and special privileges that no other nation has so that you can be used in a unique way that no other nation, no other human is being used in that way in order to bless the world, to save the world, to redeem the world. That is Israel's mission. Now notice all these gives them our three basic needs. The need to be accepted, you are my chosen people. The need to feel safe, you're going to be my people. And the need to be, um, a, a, have a purpose and a mission, a kingdom of priests. Those are our three basic desires, acceptance, security, and a purpose in life. And God is giving it to all of them. The sign of the covenant is Sabbath. And the Sabbath is ceasing from the things that get in the way of your knowing God and having a relationship. We talked about this. Just as God ceased from his work to enjoy his creation, we are then called to cease from our work to enjoy God. And if God is resting with us and we're resting with him, it's a reciprocal, mutual relationship. And so we rest from the things that get in the way. We rest from the things that, like, you know when you go on vacation and some people still are thinking about work the entire time and they're not really resting? That's not really vacation. It's not just stopping from doing things. It's ceasing the things that get in the way of enjoying God. Taking a nap gets in the way of you knowing and enjoying God, then don't take a nap. If gardening helps you enjoy God and connect with him, then do gardening. The point is that I do the things that nurture my relationship with God. I do the things that remind me that my purpose, my safety, and my acceptance is not found in my accomplishment or in you liking me or my promotions or my money, power, beauty, skills, whatever. It's found in God. And whatever I need to do to be reminded that God is all of that for me and not my to-do list and not my stresses, that's Sabbath rest. And so God is calling them to enjoy him and rest him and find their identity, security, and acceptance and purpose in him before they go back out into the world again and the world tries to seduce them away from God. And so this is the sign of the covenant. Israel was to be what Adam and Eve failed to be. The image of God expanding the kingdom of God and subduing the chaos in the world and making things right again. They were to be rulers and subduers of the chaotic creation. They were to be priests to bring the nations into a covenant relationship with God. He is rebuilding the garden through Israel. Now granted, this garden has thorns and thistles and chaos in it, but he's going to use Israel to clean up the garden, to restore the garden, and then begin to expand the garden again. Unfortunately, we know the story they fail miserably. But they are to be the new Adam and Eve. 
in this Mosaic covenant, this covenant is way more complicated than any other covenant we've ever had. It's more complicated than the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, because there's so many moving parts in it. This Mosaic covenant consisted of three things, the law, the tabernacle, and the sacrificial system. Now, the law is not, in its essence, the Ten Commandments. The law, in its essence, is Deuteronomy 6.5. The love of the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your life, and with all of your everything. And then Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the heart of the law. It's only two commands. Love God, love others. This is the relationship in the garden. Your relationship with God, your relationship with each other. At that time, it was just Adam and Eve. Now, the law is broken down into three categories. The first category is the heart of the law. Love God, love others. That is the essence of the law. There is nothing else to the law except for that. If you're loving God and loving others with your true heart, sacrificially, you're obeying the law. You don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. You don't have to worry about any other rules or laws. Because if you're truly sacrificing your own desires and subordinating it for the purpose of other people, then you're automatically obeying the law. But because we're not really capable of doing that, we need examples of what that looks like. So the Ten Commandments are ten ways to love God and love others. How do you love God? You don't worship other idols. How do you love God? You don't take his name in vain. How do you love God? You rest with him and enjoy him on the Sabbath. How do you love God? You don't create graven images. How do you love others? You don't steal from them. You don't lust after them. You don't covet. You don't murder. You don't cheat. You don't lie. You don't do these things to people. If you do these things, you're hurting them. And you're not loving. We don't want them to be done to us. We don't do them then. That's all the Ten Commandments are. Are ten general examples of what it means to love God and love others. There are 316 other laws. This is this third level. The third level is there's 316 laws and what's called the law code. And the law code are things like if your neighbor's donkey comes into your backyard and falls into a hole and breaks its leg, then you're to pay for the repair of the donkey or at least give them your donkey until their donkey is healed and then send it back. Now, that's just loving your neighbor. These are all just examples. If you get violated in this way, then you're to pay this thing. If you hurt somebody, then you're to make recompense in this way restoration costs. All these laws were just now very specific court cases. Let's say, you know how when your kids come, you're like, okay, so what if, and they give you this very specific complicated thing, and you're like, okay, let's talk about that. That's what the law code is. It's now let's take this general don't steal, and now let's look at a very specific case and scenario of how you would apply that. And that's all the law is. You don't need to get hung up in all the details. Now, the reason that God gave us these three levels, the very general love, God love others, then a more slightly specific but still general Ten Commandments, and then very specific scenarios in the law code is because we're selfish and we're dumb. And we need examples. So he gives us this law, not to be legalistic and to put us under the weight of the law, but to help us think. So even today, are there any laws on social media in the Mosaic Covenant? No. Are there any laws on automobiles and technology? No. Right? Well, let's transfer today. Well, if that's what you're supposed to do with a donkey, what if somebody drives their car into your driveway and gets a flat tire in your driveway? Well, how do you love them? You pay for the repair of the tire. You help them fix it. 
and then you send them on their way better off than what you found them. And that's what we, well, you could, because you could easily say, well, we don't want donkeys anymore, so we don't have to do that law. Yes, you do, because it's the spirit of the law. This is what Jesus meant by the spirit of the law. And the Holy Spirit was given to us to help us translate the scenarios into modern day scenarios. And when he says, do not bear false testimony, so many people need to reevaluate that one on social media. The idea is, this is what the law was. Now, why did he give us the law code? I've used this before, but it's one of my favorite examples of the law. So there's this thing, TV show called Doctor Who. And Doctor Who, he's this alien who has multiple lies, and he travels through the universe, and he did this really horrible thing to his planet, but if you ever want to watch it, I'm not going to spoil it for you. So not that anybody's probably going to start watching it now. He travels the universe, and he's trying, he does such a horrible thing that he's trying to redeem himself, which is a typical theme in a lot of movies, by doing more good than he's done evil. So he goes out into the universe and tries to make things right that have been wronged by all these arch nemesis out there, the Daleks and the, all these people. And one day, these are all these people out there don't like him because they see him as a meddler, but he's really just fixing things. And other people really like him because he fixes things. So one day all of his enemies get together and they kind of like capture him on this planet and they put him on trial because they don't like him. And they're like, oh, Doctor Who. He's this really good moral person. And he's a good person. He has all these rules of what he can and cannot do. Look at him. And Doctor Who has one of the best lines I've ever heard on human nature. He says, no, I'm not a good person. That's why I need so many rules and laws to regulate me. This is what God meant, why Jesus meant, like, why do you call God good? Why do you call me good? No, he says, why do you call me good? Do you realize what you're saying? The only one that is good is God. And he's the only one that doesn't need laws put on him because he just naturally is good and loving all the time. We need laws because we're not good people. And the only thing that frees you from the law is Christ when he comes and lives in you. Even then, you're still expected, but now you're not obeying rules and laws under, in Christ to be a good person. Now you're going to the Spirit in you, and you're allowing it to guide you, and you're allowing it to lead you. And if you follow it and submit to it, you will automatically become good in that particular scenario. We don't always do that all the time, but one day Christ will come and give you the ability to submit to the Spirit all the time and become good again. This law code and this Ten Commandments and this ultimate law of love God and love others all together are preparing you and tutoring you to think like Christ and recognize Him when He comes. That's the whole purpose of the law code. Until Christ comes, the law keeps you accountable with its judgments, and it tutors you in what God expects. The second part of the Mosaic Covenant is the tabernacle. The tabernacle consisted of a tent surrounded by a courtyard. This becomes a micro-garden of Eden, where heaven, the throne of Yahweh, and earth were linked together through the Shekinah glory of Yahweh, and they dwelt together in the tent. So just like the Garden of Eden had a gate in the east, so did the tabernacle. Just like it was surrounded by a shrubbery, that there was no way out except for their gates, so this had a courtyard. And just like there was a dwelling place for Adam and Eve to dwell with Yahweh, there was the tabernacle. Now this Garden of Eden, because of sin, 
It only has, the only place that God dwells is in the, the Holy of Holies. So you walk into the courtyard and you atone for your sins at the altar where you pay the sin, pay the price of sin by killing an animal. Then you go to the wash basin and you cleanse yourselves of your sins. Then only the priest can go into the tent, the front room. And when they go into the front room, they can actually commune a little bit better with God by taking part of the bread and the light of God and the prayers of God. And then only the high priest one time a year could go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was and the Shekinah glory of God came down. But even then when he went in, he had smoke and incense and it was so thick that when he swung it and went in with the blood of a lamb, he couldn't see anything because the smoke would cover everything up. And all this communicates is that sin has cut you off from God. The only way you can get deeper and deeper into the tabernacle is if you're holier and holier and holier. The more unique you are compared to the world and the more righteous you are, the deeper into the tabernacle you can get. But even then, the only access to God you have is this giant pillar of fire over a gold box that you can't barely see because of the smoke. If you stepped out of the tabernacle, you could see the Shekinah glory of God going up into the heavens, but you were cut off. And so the only way in is you had to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant, meaning you had to have faith in God, and you had to come with an animal sacrifice atoning for your sins. If you did those two things, you have access to God. And even then, the access is very limited. Now, what this tabernacle is teaching you is that you are cut off from God because of your sin. However, in his grace and mercy, he has provided a way in. There's still a way in. Only one way in, but there's still a way in. And it's by faith and repentance. Your faith in the Abrahamic covenant and your repentance through an animal sacrifice. The only way to God is by faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Now the Shekinah glory of God goes up in heaven and the Jews envision God sitting on his throne above the circumference of the earth and the Shekinah glory of God was like his legs coming down to the earth and the Ark of the Covenant was his footstool. And so by him sitting on the throne in heaven and his feet coming down in the footstool on earth in the tabernacle, heaven and earth were linked together. This is the only place where heaven and earth overlapped after the fall. And you could come into the presence of God. And so in space, time, and matter, they have access to God. The space of the tabernacle, the matter is the physical Shekinah glory of God, and the time is Sabbath and festivals. You have access to God in space, time, and matter. And this is the whole point of the tabernacle, was to dwell with God, to gain access to him. Unlike the pagan temples, which were far removed from the people and high up on mountains that the people didn't have access to, Yahweh came down and dwelt right in their midst. He dwelt right on the dirt, right in the soil, in the Adama. He came unto the Adama, the soil, and he dwelt right then and there. And he dwelt in the midst of the Adam, the humans. And he didn't put himself high on a mountain in a grand temple. He came down and he came among their midst and dwelt with them. This is where he's different. God is coming down. God is constantly came, coming down. He came down in the Garden of Eden to dwell with Adam and Eve. He came down to Abraham to walk with him and teach him and speak to him and guide him. And he came down in the burning bush to be with Moses. And he's coming down onto Mount Sinai and inviting the people to join him. And then he came down into the tabernacle to dwell among them. 
He is dwelling with them. The Shekinah glory of Yahweh, Shekinah dwelling, the dwelling of God is with them in their midst. This is what makes him unique and unlike the pagan gods. He does not socially distance himself from them. The third part was the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was a set of sacrifices, six total. Animal sacrifices, grain sacrifices, and libation, or wine-slash-water sacrifices. They would offer up to God. The one, some of one sacrifice would atone for your sins. Other sacrifices were thanks offerings. And other sacrifices atoned for your sin against other people. You made things right. And then other sacrifices were just a way of worshiping God and fellowshipping with Him. These are detailed out in Leviticus 1-6. through 6. And the whole point of this is that some other animal has to die for your sins. You're a sinner. And the only way you can come into the presence of God, well, you deserve to die. And you can't come into the presence of God. So the only way you can come into the presence of God is something else that dies in your place. And then you would sacrifice grain as a worship, a thanks offering to God, acknowledging that He is giving you life. And He has shown grace. And He has provided for you so you can be with Him. And so when you do this, it gave you access to God as well. And it's the way that you atone for your sins. Now when you put all this together, in the center, the middle one, the second one is a tabernacle. This is your access to God. This is where you can walk in to the best version of the Garden of Eden that we can have on this side of the fall. And you can walk into the presence of God, and you can know Him, you can worship Him, you could rest and enjoy Him. That was your access to God. But the only way you could have access to God is if you're righteous. So the law taught you what righteousness looked like. It taught you how to love God and love others so that you could go into the tabernacle and actually dwell with God. Just like if people are treating us like crap, they're abusing us and, and verbally abusing us and they're mocking us and making fun of us, they're hurting us, they're being selfish and insensitive, we don't want to be with them. We don't want to hang out with them. If they're not acting in a loving way, we don't want to hang out with them. And that's what the law taught you. But since nobody can be righteous, then the sacrificial system atoned for your sins. They made up for your lack of righteousness. And it allowed you to gain access. Just like if people repent and apologize and make things right in our relationships, we're willing to forgive them, hopefully. Maybe it takes longer for certain sins than others to forgive. Then we bring them back into our presence. But if you have any friends in your life, you're constantly forgiving because it's impossible for anybody to not wrong you. And if you don't forgive people, then you're alone or you're in denial. This is all the law. The Mosaic Covenant was just basically how to come in the presence of God. This is what righteousness looks like, and this is how you repent. And the whole idea is loving God and loving others is at least the desire to pursue God, to know God, and when you mess up, you repent. And you try to make things right. And the Mosaic Law was conditional. If they said, forget you, God, it was called a high-handed sin. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to obey the law. I don't want to do sacrifices. If you shook your fist at God, you cannot have a relationship with God, and you cannot have access to God. And so it was conditional based on your obedience, both through the law and repentance, animal sacrifice. If you had no desire to do either, you have no right into the tabernacle. And that's what made the Mosaic Law conditional. If they did not obey the law, then God would cut them off from the covenant, cut them off from the land. The whole purpose of the law was first to reveal God's standard of righteousness. 
We don't know what righteousness looks like. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. If you're living with a bunch of sinners sinning all the time, if you live in an abusive home where everybody's drinking and cussing and beating each other all the time, and you live in a neighborhood where everybody's doing that all the time, and there are some neighborhoods like that, then you're never going to know that this is not normal because everywhere you look, you just see this all the time. It's not until something that is not like that enters into your life or you're pulled out of it and put into somebody else's life that you begin to realize this is not normal. And so when everybody's a sinner in the entire world and they've never had a law code given from a God before except for Adam and Eve, but they, over the generations, forgot that one, then God comes and teaches you what righteousness is. And now for the first time, you know what righteousness looks like. And so that was the whole purpose of the law, to show you what righteousness looks like, to take you out of the abusive, defiled world that you live in and show you what goodness looks like. Now, when you do that, you see it, you realize you have to follow it. So the second purpose is that now I begin to live in a righteous way, but then I realize I failed miserably. Therefore, I'm a sinner. So it reveals my sin to me. Now, for the first time ever, I realize I don't have it all together. For the first time ever, I realize what I'm actually doing to people and what I'm doing to God. Now I realize it's not normal, and now I realize how stuck and how hopeless I am because I cannot meet the requirements of this law. Maybe a little bit externally, but definitely not in my heart. Which brings us to the third purpose, and that's then to reveal my need for a Savior. Now I realize I need a Savior. I need somebody outside of myself to come in and save me outside myself to come and save me. And this was the purpose of the law. It was to show you how you need Christ. And the more you tried the law, the more you realize you're a failure, the more you would cry out for help. Remember, if you can't do it, healthiness is getting help. Healthiness is getting help. And so this is the purpose of the law, was to point us towards Christ, the Mosaic law. Until Christ comes, we talked about this a little bit, it regulates you with judgments right? There's some people that the only reason they do the right thing is because they're afraid of getting caught and getting punished. My uncle always used to say, locks only keep honest people honest, right? The law, people will speed if they think that they cannot get caught or they think that they can afford the ticket. But if you know you're going to get caught every single time you go on the road and you can't afford the ticket, you're not going to speed. Not because you think it's right, and not because you're a good person, but because you don't want the judgment. A man, a man wants to so the only reason they haven't murdered their brother-in-law is because they know they're going to get caught. And they don't want to go to jail. And you think he was kind of joking, but I know this person well enough that they weren't really joking. There are some people who are so calloused and so filled with brokenness or rage, like dictators, that nothing stops them. And when there is no law that holds them accountable, they are unchained. And people die and are hurt by the masses. But for most people who do not have unlimited absolute power, judgment is a pretty good deterrent from doing a lot of crimes. The reason the law was so harsh with death penalties was to motivate people from not hurting other people when people don't care about not hurting people. How do you get people who don't care about hurting people to care? You threaten their lives. And then they care. Now, does that, is that the kind of obedience God wants? No, but that obedience is better than people burning and murdering the world down. Because these are his children. 
And so God protects you and I, who he loves, and we are trying from people like that by regulating them with harsh judgments. So that ultimately one day when Christ comes and brings you the Holy Spirit, he will transform your heart so that you actually will want to obey and have the desire and have a much better motivation just than rewards and judgment. This is why when your kids are really little, one of the very few things you have to motivate them is consequences and rewards. Because they're little sinners. (laughs) But as they get older, and by older I mean like in the later parts of elementary school, hopefully, well at the very beginning, you're hopefully guiding them into a heart desire to want to obey. It's a gradual process. At the very young age, when they don't understand any communication, all you have is rewards and punishments. M&Ms for going potty. Little slaps on the wrist if you do things that you're not supposed to. But then as they get older, you start talking about their heart and why they were motivated to do that to their sister and why we need Jesus then to help us. And that's, and then eventually, hopefully, they'll accept Christ and the Holy Spirit will do what you could never do in all your conversations. Actually give them the ability to understand and do. This is what the law is doing. It's the father and the mother before they're old enough to understand, the kid is understand consequences. And then when Jesus comes along, he changes the heart. And so this is how he motivates them. Now, that's not God's ideal. But this is also shows you why when Israel worships the golden calf, he doesn't kill them all, because they repent. When David murders Uriah and violates his wife Bathsheba, and David repents, he doesn't murder him. Because repentance, if you go into the tabernacle and repent of your sins, you won't have to endure the punishments of the law, because you're not putting yourself under the law, you're putting yourself under God. And this is why when Christ comes along, he frees you from the law and the punishments and condemnation because you're going to him instead. Repentance always allows you to escape the judgment and to experience repentance or um, to experience forgiveness. To experience forgiveness. So this isn't a new thing with Christ where he forgives you through grace. Even David, before Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, experienced forgiveness from the law and the judgment of the law because he put his faith in God. It's always been about faith. It's always been about the faith. Now, did he still experience consequences? Yes. Do you as a believer who is no longer condemned under Christ experience consequences for your actions? Yes, but no condemnation. No condemnation. And so the law, even the law wasn't legalistically applied without any consideration to every person for every single sin. You could be freed from the penalty of the law just by repentance and forgiveness, even in the First Testament pre-Christ. And that itself points to Christ as well. So this was why God gave the law. Now, in their obedience to the law, but their inability to do it perfect, and then submitting to the animal sacrifices where they repent of their sins, they can maintain a functional righteousness. Remember, it's not a theological righteousness that you have to be perfect and without, that you have to be without sin in order to get into heaven. That's not possible anymore after the fall. But a functional righteousness where you're pursuing God and repenting, and therefore he declares you to be righteous by faith. And you can come into a relationship with Yahweh. God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, and then he says, enter into a covenant with me. And they all agreed to enter a covenant with him. And they sacrificed an animal, they entered the covenant, and they say, we promise that we will love you and love others. Yeah, right. 
And if we don't, you can kill us all. And through the blood of a lamb, they signed the covenant. And they all agreed to it. 